I'm Matthew McQuillan, and I'm back here with uh, Professor Larry Cotabacker to discuss Chapter 11 from his book, Surya Diva on the International Human um, Rights Implications of the Situation in Hong Kong, written on August 16, 2019. How are you doing, Professor Backer? Oh, just fine. I'm enjoying what's left of summer. It's going by too quickly. Yeah, once you get past July 4th, you're on the downward slope out of here. That's right. That's right. Although today is a great day for a very, very interesting chapter. Absolutely. So let's talk about this interesting, interesting chapter. I guess it begins talking about um, the scant attention that uh, this situation was getting in the West, um, I guess, written by Professor Diva. Being in the West, I thought that it was getting a lot of attention, uh, maybe at this point in time, maybe not. What, why did you say that there was scant attention being paid? at this time. All right. And this is what was fascinating. And um, in Surya Deva's intervention was probably very timely at this point. Until this, this moment, we had been thinking about this really in very old fashioned terms. Uh, it was a kind of early 20th century, late 19th century exposition. That was the narrative. It was a narrative that was convenient and bought certainly by uh, the Western media, uh, and in their influence campaigns, it was certainly the the way in which the central authorities were shaping their rhetoric, uh, and uh, the the local authorities as as well as well as the uh, the the intellectuals. We'd already talked about the uh, the uh, academic and intellectual interventions in in Hong Kong as well. This was supposed to be a great costume drama in a sense. Until this point, you're dealing with high politics, you're dealing with great issues. Now, of course, by mid-August, before that you were just dealing with a bunch of people on the streets, um, but you're dealing with high drama. You've got mass protests. This is grand political theater uh, on, on a, you know, on the top stage. And what uh, Surya Diva reminds us, uh, and, and quite rightly at this point, is that in fact that world around which the narrative has been shaping until this point is actually anachronistic and that in fact the world in which the united states the international community the local protesters on the streets of hong kong local authorities and the central authorities in china are all embedded in is a world of global trade and global engagement. It's a world where high political drama is never very far from the realities, the day-to-day -day realities of the management and development in Chinese terms of productive forces, in Western terms of global production chains and their operations. And so what, what, uh, what, uh, Professor Diva does is to say, look, yeah, we're dealing with a political situation here and it is of, uh, it's become a fairly high order, but it is one in which private sector institutions, especially economic institutions, also both play a vital role and tend to be at the front lines in terms of consequences for what's going on. Um, we had a hint of that, but from a state-managed perspective in the development of the narrative of the central authorities, right? Remember, uh, and this with uh, Professor Chen as well, the, the rolling out of the what I thought was a very powerful 
uh, discursive trope of stability and prosperity, right? So there's economics involved in that too, which is classically Marxist-Leninist in a sense, because you're worrying about economic, social, and cultural rights as the gateway, um, as opposed to uh, the liberal democratic um, uh, hierarchy, which would have started with civil and political rights, which is in a sense where the, the protesters are going through the use of performance of civil and political rights in their bodies, less so in their rhetorical stances, at least as it's being trumpeted elsewhere. And so we move back to business here. And um, there are two things that are going on here. One of them is, as I mentioned, is we're refocusing on the overarching, the chapeau politics, which is economics. And that is the uh, care and feeding, the maintenance and the operation of global production and global production chain involving both local, regional, and international actors, most of them private, some of them hybrid, and some of them state-owned enterprises, right? So that's one thing. And at the same time, um, uh, Professor Diva wears two hats. Uh, he is, of course, a, 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 a really, really well-respected faculty member at City University of Hong Kong, who, by the way, I've known for many years and really admire. At the same time, he has been now for a number of years uh, one of the more influential voices in the working, the, the UN Working Group for Business and Human Rights, which was the uh, organ created in the aftermath of the endorsement of the UN Guiding Principles for Business and Human Rights in Geneva in 2011 as a group of, of uh, academics and, and senior people who are not for the most part, diplomats whose job is to further develop and to um, and and to develop capacity with respect to the human rights project of uh, global economic activity. So he's wearing these two hats, and he's sitting in Hong Kong, and he sees, wow, look what's going on. This this thing that began as a huge number of people on the streets worrying about the ramifications of the way in which the extradition law was being introduced, right, is now more engagement, but it has significant collateral effects on a variety of different levels on global economic actors. And that's what he focused on. He focuses on it in a particular and at the time a fairly notorious context. So these actors, these um, these private actors and the corporations in the region, were they caught off guard by their position in this, um, well, at the time, the current events going on? Or did they understand where their positions laid? Um, all right, the, the, the correct, the, the, the correct answer is very simple. Um, it's hard to know what they knew. Uh, certainly many of these actors uh, who have global enterprises with uh, global agents everywhere on earth are were likely in a position to know a whole lot more than uh, you or I would know. At the mm -hmm. same time, knowledge is only, and that's really, by this point, this, this is one of the insights that, that you would be able to draw from the book, 
by this point, it becomes clear that it doesn't matter how much you know, one can assume that the central authorities in uh, Beijing know a whole lot of facts. The local authorities probably know even more facts, local people on the ground. Everyone knows a bunch of stuff, a bunch of facts, but the, the, the condition of knowing facts doesn't guarantee that you're going to be able to want understand them to put them together and three project consequences out of what it is that you know or have access to in a way that is accurate right and so here we've got a lot of instances already by the middle of august of overestimation underestimation of miscalculation of misreading of missing opportunities you've got all of this going on and by all the actors right everyone is and and some of them of course having access to huge amounts of facts um but facts aren't enough because you're you're both looking at facts you're trying to figure out what they mean what their consequences are and you're also having to weigh and balance probabilities of risk and reward this is all calculations business people do that all the time when you're assessing business risk political people do it all the time when you're assessing political risk local political risk national international political risk all of that you start with the facts but a lot of it becomes touch contextual and it's very easy uh, especially in fast moving situations that aren't going according to the quote unquote game plan that is by the rules that everyone uh, more or less is, is abiding by. When that happens, all bets are off and it's likely that you're going to miss things. My guess, and this is completely a guess, I have no basis for this other than looking back on what I see and then and, and kind of uh, surmising is that uh, businesses were caught as flat-footed um, and as surprised as everyone else, probably more so, um, and that in the context, they were really trapped. They were trapped because the expected responses of business to situations like this, and you saw this, for example, in the aftermath of the George Floyd uh, murders, in the United States would have propelled companies to act in a particular way. But that that expectation for a global company from their Western or liberal democratic customers, banks, financers, government oversight people would likely be extremely different than the expectation from uh, regulators, uh, lenders, customers within Marxist-Leninist organizations and within Marxist-Leninist systems uh, like that of the central authorities. And here, uh, and in this case, this is Cathay Pacific, here Cathay Pacific is really caught between a rock and a hard place. If they were in Rome and you were dealing with Italy or if they were in the United States and they were dealing with something occurring here, their actions would be the expected actions and indeed the criticism for failure to take it would have led them in one direction. If they were in China outside of the Hong Kong SAR, the expected, the expectation of their actions and response would likely have been very different. And they're sitting and, and they're stuck between them because Cathay Pacific is based in Hong Kong. 
their uh, they must their actions must be in fidelity to what you're surmising, which is now a moving target, to be the expectations within the the SAR. But you're also flying into China, and you've got a tremendous amount of investment in China, and you're flying outside of China, and you've got a tremendous amount of investment out there. What do you do? And the the answer that that we saw in in this case, and you'll have to buy the book and read the chapter to look at the details. The answer in this case is a, um, a miscalculation and a miscalculation, not about what the right thing was, but about the, um, the way in which all of the sides, the antagonistic sides reacted and the force of that reaction once they decided to do or not do something. And here in this case, um, it revolved around actions taken against um, um, the uh, employees, including very high-level employees of Cathay Pacific uh, in the context of, of the protests. I won't say more than that other than, than to say that um, there were about faces and there, there was a lot of criticism coming in every direction. Surya then looks at this and he says, hey, I understand all of this, but we have been working for the last almost 10 years on an international project of business and human rights, uh, which is a three-part um, set of expectations, a state duty to protect human rights, a corporate responsibility to respect human rights, which is autonomous of the state duty to protect, and a duty to provide adequate uh, remedies by both state actors and corporate actors and this is a framework, it's a soft law framework to be sure, but it is a framework that was endorsed both by the United States and endorsed by the People's Republic of China at the time that it was brought forward in 2011. So here, supposedly, we've got all of the major actors, the European powers, the United States and the People's Republic, all of them endorsing this framework. And yet from here, his perspective, applying the framework as he would, what we see is the inability of the company to actually comply with their responsibilities to respect human rights in this context. And that's what makes the analysis very easy. Um, in the chapter, I, I look at his analysis um, really well done and well formed, and it is a, a, a brilliant exposition of the orthodox, uh, certainly from out of Geneva, the orthodox approach to the issue and its possible resolution. And then I engage with it. Mm -hmm. um, but you'll have to buy a book to see how I engage. And the engagement um, is both sympathetic, but also not one that suggests that um, what, what uh, Professor Surya suggests is the only possible path here that's open to, to Catholic Pacific. At the same time, they're in a bind. Uh, and what we discover, of course, and why this is valuable beyond, wow, we're actually looking now at the private side, the globalization side of this problem, to, wow, if we have to look at the globalization side of the situation in Hong Kong, this thing has really ratcheted up because now we've got not just global political actors, but global private actors involved. And then three, oh, how are we gonna apply those rules when we're at the borderlands of approaches to the application of the UN guiding principles <laughs> where Hong Kong sits right at that border? 
Mm-hmm. And that's what makes this chapter for me. It, it was a lot of, it, it was really interesting. And of course I work in this area. Um, it, it was a very interesting engagement. Um, his view is really worth looking at carefully. Uh, my suggestions may be, uh, and then studying the responses both of the company and of the, the principal actors is, is, uh, is fairly enlightening. And again, foreshadowing what is likely to go on, what will be going on over the course of the next nine months. Yeah, and I think reading this chapter, I think it's something interesting to me coming from an American perspective because I was looking at it and I was looking at the similarities to, say, the NBA situation, which was going on around, I believe, this exact same time at the beginning of their training camps uh, with the Houston Rockets GM and how they were caught in between a rock and a hard place. Granted, they were based out of New York and not Hong Kong, but with so much business and investment in China, it was really a, um, a mistrust by both sides um, where some people saw China as positioning themselves to become pretty much impervious to Western influence. And then the other side saying that they were trying to influence them from the West. And, um, and so the right. response. And, and, and I'm glad you brought up. I'm, I'm, yeah, no, no. And, and I'm glad you brought up the MBA uh, uh, issue because that really nicely, nicely frames the issue. So Cathay Pacific is sitting in Hong Kong and they are really, uh, they feel the weight of the perspective of the central authorities uh, significantly. The MBA, for all of their investment in China, is not sitting in Hong Kong and not sitting in China, except to the extent of the reaches of their global production chain, in this case, uh, serving the, the interests of basketball. But they are sitting in the United States, and that is the 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 heat of the sun of the U.S. and not just its its government, because here the central authorities, of course, play a um, a privileging role in the in the discourse uh, in Marxist-Leninist states. In the U.S., it's a little bit more complicated. You've got the government, but really here you're dealing with markets and markets that are oriented to particular ways of looking at relationships, people, and political issues, it made life for the MBA somewhat difficult. And uh, Surya, and then I, in, in my own way, um, suggest both the conundrums and some of the avenues that are then open to businesses in a context where, I mean, when you're sitting really between two forces that are at this point, likely already showing their both their incompatibility and their unwillingness to um, to interact uh, until this situation is resolved. Um, there's no good news for business in this context mm-hmm. other than a resolution one way or another. Yeah, so so we get to this point in the book and I believe the book has about what, 32 chapters in it. And so now we're in chapter 11. The 31. So 31, 32, it's all numbers. So we're about one third of the way through the book. And at this point um, in the conflict, where is your head at as a writer or as the author of this book? At the, back in the middle of August of of 2019. Yes, sir. um, At this point, honestly, at this point, I was getting very, um, I was getting concerned. 
I was getting concerned because I thought, okay, the pattern has been broken. And while we had until this point sort of kind of seen this pattern before, and then everything, and, and we talked about this a little before, and then everything kind of calms down back to the simmer that everyone can live with. By this point, it was becoming clear that that was not going to happen. And there was going to be a winner and there was going to be a loser. And I was beginning to start worrying about two things at this point. One was, what is it exactly that the, um, because you're in it too deep at this point, the, the constellation of protesting groups, uh, I was worried that they had not yet crystallized a position, a normative position that would be the equal of the weight of their accumulated protesting on the streets. And at the same time, um, I was getting the sense and the other part of the worry that the central authorities were becoming increasingly unwilling to sit and think about engagement other than essentially on their on their terms. And that's a recipe for someone not going to be very happy about things. And and by this point also, I was beginning to think that no matter what happened, that there would be no going back to the status quo ante. That is, there was no going back to June 1st, that okay. Hong Kong that existed until 9 June was now in some respects gone. What was going, there was going to be a transformation. What that transformation looked like, I didn't know, but you know, you beginning to see some of the context, but for me, it was just too early to tell other than by this point to, to get a sense that things are not going to be the same. And there are a lot of people around still by this point who were um, either heavily into the theoretics or the conceptualization or who thought that this thing could be salvaged or that there was, uh, that it was an episodic thing and we didn't have to worry about it. And uh, life would go on, but there were just too many things in motion. Uh, the Chinese Marxist-Leninism was moving forward vigorously in both its um, its development and it's looking for a place where it can evidence its success and its development. Um, globalization and globalized trading was now also developing. And again, that's why the, the Surya uh, chapter 11 was was so interesting for me, also now maturing and also interested in showing the success of its structural models for implementation. And the project, the human rights project, civil and political rights was ramping up and ramping up significantly, especially in its heartland, right in the United States, where we were uh, about to ourselves engage in some potentially transformative conversations with respect to which still in 2021, we are nowhere near done with. And so given all of these things that are moving around us, like all of these little patterns and trajectories, these wheels moving around, even by August, you knew that the, the context just made it impossible for any kind of, of going back. Where we were going, 
didn't know. That becomes clearer, I think. It, it became clearer, and this is just foreshadowing, it became clearer, but we were wrong by December. The indications were it looked like it was going one direction. And then COVID changes everything. And but you have to stay tuned for our discussions of our next chapter to, to figure out how that works. Like going back to the future one, two, and three. Well, thank you um, again for being a part of these conversations and allowing me to take part in them as well. And I look forward to doing more with you in the future. And hopefully we'll get some more out before the uh, release date on July 13th. Thank you. And thank you for taking part in that. Absolutely. And I look forward to seeing all of our viewers on that live. All right. All right. Thank well, you. Have a nice day.